Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As always, we welcome your emails, Cork Today at c103.ie. And can I start with a gorgeous email that put a smile on my face when I saw it this morning? And it is from Edwina and her eight-month-old twins. And she writes to us because she wants to highlight an act of kindness. And we always love if there is an act of kindness and somebody has gone above and beyond or done something that is just truly, truly kind to let us know. It's lovely to share it with other people. That's what happened to Edwina yesterday. She was doing a bit of shopping in Little in Canturk and she was shopping with her eight-month-old twins. And when she went to pay, her card was faulty. Something was wrong. The, the machine, the card, it just wouldn't accept it. She said, this lovely lady and a complete stranger paid for my groceries. My groceries came to €106. Euro. I tried to stop her, but she absolutely insisted. Now, I didn't get any details when I, uh, um, when I tried to ask her, um, you know, so that I could pay her back afterwards. She just uh, told me, you don't need to, to pay me back. You can repay it someday to somebody else. Now, I got upset, not because of my faulty card or not because the embarrassment of standing here my card wouldn't work, but simply by the kindness of this stranger. Every time I think about it, I actually shed a tear. Please share this story on your programme to restore people's faith in kindness, but also in the hope that the lady might be listening. Thank her so much and hopefully someday... I'll make somebody feel like you made me feel today. Isn't that beautiful? That really is gorgeous. And now, and obviously, I'd love to think that that lady might be listening, but she, the fact that she wouldn't even give Edwina her name, she obviously doesn't want any publicity for it at all. She just saw somebody in need that she was able to help out and is hoping now and I know from the tone of Edwina's email that she will pass it on but it's yeah, I can understand you the emotion of it as well I would feel really emotional if somebody did something like that as, as well so well done there are good kind kind people uh, out there in the world and it kind of renews your faith doesn't it in uh, humanity a lot of articles in the papers again today about uh, immigration and about people protesting at immigration uh, centres and actually uh, Edward in Douglas has been on to us uh, just about protests at immigration centres and he says he wouldn't always agree with the Minister for Social Protection Heather Humphreys but he said he listened to her yesterday and he has to agree with her comments when she was calling out the protesters at immigration centres and wonders why they're not at work instead of protesting. And this came up yesterday. It was the first leaders' questions in the doll. They were back after their Christmas break. Actually, we were joking yesterday morning when we were, you know, thinking about them going back into the doll in the Senate after their Christmas break. Would the Christmas tree still be up or not? Or would somebody have taken that down for them? Anyway, so they were back. It was the first day of the doll. So the first day of leaders' questions for the new year. 
and uh, it looked like Heather Humphreys was taking a lot, a number of the questions yesterday. But anyway, she decided to take aim at some of those who were demonstrating against refugee accommodation centres. And I quote, this is what Minister Heather Humphreys said yesterday. It is a wonder how some people can be at protests in the middle of the day when everybody else is working. We have had to announce more work permits recently. Why? Because we cannot get staff in certain sectors. Heather Humphreys told the Dáil that over the last decade, PRSI contributions from foreign nationals has boosted the Exchequer by 17 billion. She says this is coming from foreign workers in our health service, in hospitality sector, food processing plants and other key sectors. This is helping us to pay for the pensions in this country and it's also helping to pay for the unemployment benefits and I suppose in a way having a pop that if some of the people are protesting are claiming unemployment benefits it's very possible that it is immigrant workers that are paying their dole every week. Now Michael Lowry was also speaking yesterday. Obviously, Michael Lowry is the independent TD for Tipperary and he's also a TD who normally the government can count on for support, but obviously he's in the throes of immigration and how immigration is affecting his area with what's going on in Ross Gray. He was speaking uh, yesterday and he criticised the government for its handling of the situation in Ross Gray in his own constituency. He said the fact that the government has agreed in principle to now purchase a community hotel in the area immediately after handing one over to be used as asylum centre shows that they're making it up as they go along. He told it all that the government is now on the run on its immigration policy. He said, how many times have we heard from ministers in this house that there should be consultation and that there should be communication? In the case of Ross Gray, There was no consultation and with the current system, we are not getting consultation or openness and transparency. What we are getting, he said, are deals done, contracts signed that are shrouded in secrecy until the very last minute. And he said this alienates the local community and then that leads to to suspicion, that leads to distrust. And then uh, in many ways, then that leads to the type of protests that we have seen um, around the country. And again, still, and, and I tried to do some research on this yesterday to find out why this hotel was working and functioning up to the day before it was announced. The workers were called in to be told we're closing as a hotel and we are going to reopen as an asylum centre. Was the hotel not doing business or was it, was it a profitable hotel or not because I also saw in the papers this morning that one Fianna Fáil sen- senator um, he's, he's Pat Casey now he also happens to be a hotelier and he was speaking I was at a private Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meeting but it's been reported that he said that it shouldn't be more lucrative to open an asylum centre than to run a, a hotel and seemingly when he made the comments and he's coming from a hotelier's point of view he said it was met with broad uh, agreement now, now, he also told in the uh, reading this in the Daily Mail uh, this morning, he also told the Daily Mail that hoteliers are opting for what he says is an easier life, given how lucrative providing accommodation to the state to house migrants has become. And he said, 
while that's going on, it's also becoming more challenging in the hospitality sector. He said it's a big problem. We're going to have to look at it. He said it's not a solution and we've already seen the impact it's having on tourism in certain parts of the uh, country. And, you know, we were only talking yesterday, I'm actually we're going to be talking about it again today, on the number of restaurants and cafes that are uh, closing down and they are closing down because of the cost of doing business but others are saying are they closing down because the footfall isn't there because if you don't have a hotel in a local area and you don't have accommodation for tourists then tourists obviously are not going to be able to visit your area and there's a knock-on effect then for all other businesses so it's an issue that certainly has to be looked at and in Bandon was on this is to do with scam texts please 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 be alert to the amount of scam texts during the rounds uh, Anne got one of those texts this morning claiming to be from Unpost Actually, I got the very same one yesterday telling Anne that she owed money for uh, a parcel. And she said it was a very genuine looking text. It had a tracking number. So did mine. I couldn't because I I was waiting on a parcel and I was thinking, is that the parcel? I couldn't I couldn't believe it when I saw it with the tracking number on it, but it is a scam. Anyway, she got on to on post uh, who said, yeah, it's a scam and all of that. But whoever she was chatting with on post said the number of people that they're now having contacting um, the post office absolutely in bits crying because they passed their number on to the link on the text. The person on a post said to Anne, if somebody owes money, if it was on post, for example, they would write you. They would never ask you to click on a link. So please, please be careful because there's a number of them out there at the moment and they are getting better and they're looking much, they look much more real than they ever did before. Now, we've been talking uh, yesterday and the day before about Pork and the possibility that Pork would be renamed as uh, Super Value Pork, but we know it's uh, well, it's on hold, certainly at the moment. But this came in late to the programme yesterday. I didn't have a chance uh, to get to it from a text to say, Patricia, a few years ago, I met a Dublin lady in Cork City who was heading to a concert and she was worn out, asking people for directions to Pork Iha. I noticed her and her companion as she was walking in my direction, stopping people repeatedly. But with every person she stopped, they were getting a shake of the head from everyone. They were looking a bit upset when they finally got to me. So I asked, look, are you OK? Can I help you in any way? And they asked me to for directions. They were trying to get to a concert ven- venue. I now understood why everybody asked before me had shaken their heads because I too had never heard of pork yo pork yo ka imha. Uh, I asked what was on there and the woman said, I can't believe that nobody knows the venue where Rod Stewart is playing today. Realisation dawned on me and I smiled, explaining that the name wasn't pronounced as she was saying and I instead directed her to Pork Cueve. Corconians just won't accept any name change of their beloved uh, pitch. Yeah, I'm sure people have struggled when you see Pork Cueve written down and, uh, and you've, it's not your native language. Uh, people certainly would struggle with it. And yesterday then, Thank you for that. Yesterday also when we were talking about the cost of doing business and for businesses, for small business, restaurants, cafes, etc., and how businesses are really struggling at the moment. And a lot of businesses are trying to keep their prices as low as they can because some businesses feel if they put up prices uh, too much, then customers won't come in. Well, that led to some people saying that they have noticed prices have increased. For example, uh, Ria in Skibbereen says, uh, Patricia, uh, this, th- what she feels is one of the biggest rip-offs is a bowl of vegetable soup. She said most times if you go somewhere and you order a bowl of vegetable soup, it'll come, it'll be a pretty small uh, bowl. 
And we all know that it, it's the blitzed up leftovers warmed in a small cauldron type pots that are very economical on electricity. Myself and my husband have decided we will not return to our cafe or a hotel that charges anything more than seven euro for a small bowl of soup. And that's from Ria and her hobby in West Cork. Thank you for that, uh, Ria. And then somebody else said, I went into a local hotel. The full portion of carvery was €14.50. When I asked how much the half portion was, I was told €12.50, just €2 off for the half portion. I would never go back there again. I think that's a rip-off. In its latest report on insolvencies, Price Waterhouse Cooper PwC estimated that as many as a thousand businesses will close this year, with most of them uh, SMEs in the retail and hospitality sectors. West Cork Independent Dáil Deputy Michael Collins feels an emergency mini-budget is required to try to halt what he calls the hemorrhaging of small business closures. And uh, Michael Collins joins me. Good morning to you, Michael. I suppose let's look at hospitality sector first because there's a lot of focus on uh, on hospitality because unfortunately we're seeing so many uh, closures. Are you particularly worried that we're losing too many of the smaller cafes, the smaller independent restaurants, especially in a rural area? Well, absolutely, you know, and our, the social fabric is being ripped apart in little towns and villages that have lovely cafes and uh, small-time restaurants and, and larger restaurants, for that matter, that are closing. So it is a very difficult situation. Many of these cafe owners and restaurant owners and, and hoteliers are facing at this present time. And more than, you know, in relation to the restaurants and cafes, there's more than 280 at the closing in the last six months, uh, and 48 alone uh, in November 2023. So there is a serious, serious crisis here. And I'm I'm not happy with the response or the non-response from both ministers for finance and the government at this present time. These cafes are were pleading with the minister and cafe owners and restaurant owners and hoteliers were pleading with the minister and publicans for that matter not to increase the VAT rate from nine to thirteen and a half percent. And they ignored. They told him. They told him this what was going to happen. And both ministers, and they both ignored it, and they put their VAT rate from nine to thirteen and a half percent, which has now seen business after business throughout the country, throughout West Cork, throughout Cork County, throughout Ireland, closing their doors. And this is a, a huge hammer blow to local communities, and it's, uh, it's leading to very, very serious anger and hurt out there uh, because most of these cafes, restaurants, uh, hotels, and pubs, they are all implying ten, twelve, fifteen, or twenty people, maybe in some cases a lot more, uh, especially when it comes to hotels. So they need a package there to protect their businesses and the ministers are not acting, are not acting quick enough. Yeah, but you know the argument that's always put forward whenever we talk about the the VAT rate for hospitality and I only heard the Thonish and Micheál Martin make the very same argument again uh, earlier this week when he was asked about it. Whenever he's asked about bringing it back down to 9%, he cites that when it went down to 9%, there were certain hotels who actually put up their prices. They didn't put down their prices. Now we all know what he's talking about there, their hotels in uh, Dublin. Do we need to have a splitting of the VAT rate, one for the food sector and one for accommodation? We certainly do, but like, Patricia, the problem that I have and the annoyance that I have and the frustration is that the government have not moved to do anything like this or haven't been, we'll say, been active on this issue, which they should have been. They can't wait, like it's no point for 
the tarnishes turn around and say, well, we had to increase the VAT rate because of this, that, and the other. When you look at 280 businesses closing and the amount of it, uh, job losses in local towns and villages and loss of a, a great service in that town and village, you have to be active and, and make some moves. Now, they're talking about uh, changes to the warehouse. Uh, the warehouse debt warehousing, scheme. yeah. But sure, that's again kicking a can down the road. That's a debt that some of them can't even pay or consider paying. So they're saying, okay, we let you off for another way without paying that, but it's only kicking the can down the road. We are the third, we have the third highest rat rate in Europe. Um, uh, it just, uh, so it, it, it was a greedy, greedy tax take by the government. Businesses were hit, hit by energy costs. Uh, they were hit with uh, sup- suppliers uh, increasing their costs. Uh, I, I, I speak to a lot of publicans, going to do a lot of clinics in pubs. Um, they're, even, they're, they're a bit annoyed with the vintners, but the vintners are making a, a better show uh, on their behalf. But they certainly tell me that the agio put up the price thing, but they didn't pass it on to the customer. So the problem here is uh, the VAT goes up, uh, the cafe owner is saying, I can't put that onto the, the to the coffee or the sandwich out there. But the supplier is telling the, uh, the cafe owner when they're supplying the flour, the sugar, the butter, the meat, we're increasing charges, we're increasing charges. So it can't keep going on to the fleet. Because if it does, Patricia, the people won't uh, come into the restaurant, won't go into the hotel, won't go into the cafe, won't go to the pub. And this is what happened here. And the government had their eye off the ball completely on one because everybody sat around the table with them and showed them the figures and showed them and told them where the, where the profits, where the losses are, and where their businesses were going to go. And they ignore, they choose to ignore them, please. OK, I, I, did see, I, I, I did see Simon Coveney, the minister, the, the enterprise minister, he met with, I think it was the restaurant, another restaurant association uh, yesterday, and he said that the government is working on a number of policies to alleviate pressure on the, the sector. Would you take comfort that there is obviously work going on behind the scenes? Um, now, he, he did mention yeah. the warehousing of the, the tax debt, but as you say, that's just kicking the can down the street. But maybe there's other policies going on that we're not aware of. The problem is, uh, Patricia, I, look, I'd welcome any moves at this stage, but the problem is the move should have been uh, made. Like, as I said to you earlier on, 48 uh, restaurants, cafes have closed in November. So now, like, we're looking into January and they may do something by January or February. These cafes, and they're ringing me, they're telling me, is there any anything out there that they can uh, get a little bit of a financial package to try and see them through the, the, the January, February period that where they're losing and hemorrhaging? Uh, so much at the moment. So, like, if Simon Coveney, Minister Coveney, is making moves, I welcome that. But the moves are far too late for 280 restaurants and, and cafes out there. So, like, all this should have been looked at the last uh, August, September, and right before the budget, and see what kind of a package. Make sure you knew what those sectors needed. Not on, not uh, start saving them when the most of them are, well, when 280 of them are gone, gone to the wall and left it too late for a lot of these people who lost their businesses. A lot of people are extremely upset out there. Yeah, and, you know, I have heard the call as well that really the for the restaurant sector uh, in particular, but this would be a lot of small businesses uh, as well, that they have been asked. A lot of things have been pushed their way in a very short period of time. I mean, they've had, you know, the increase in the minimum wage, there's the pension auto-enrollment, there's the extended sick leave, and there's increased uh, PRSI. You know, so it, 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 it does look like small businesses are being asked for too much in a very short period of time. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the cafes and restaurants that we all know about, they're, they're, they're very good to their employees. And they do want to give them, uh, keep in, in line, they have no choice with the minimum wage, and they'd like to give more if they could. But at this present time, they're suppressed 
to the very end of their tether and they're losing their businesses and they're pleading for help and the government isn't listening and didn't listen for the last seven or eight months when a, before the budget they should have been a package to try and save these businesses try your best to keep businesses uh, to survive and then you you know your your employment continuing in local communities and businesses not closing in local communities so yes like the sick leave there seems to be so many changes and to the to the man or the woman that's employing someone is, is having to take that hit uh, week after week after week, and they can't take it. And unfortunately, we've seen we've seen what is now a crisis uh, erupting uh, in that sector, and the government uh, not active in any way, shape, or form as of up to now. Any what's going to happen in the future? I don't know. I uh, written to both ministers. I haven't received a reply other than a usual automated reply. It's not good enough. You know, okay, and, and, okay, and, 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 and of course we we, 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 we are seeing energy uh, prices uh, uh, coming down, but they're coming down from a very high base. I mean, energy costs are still, I think they're they're still at 80% higher than they were uh, before they started to escalate. I think gas prices are double what they were uh, just a couple of years ago. So even though we are seeing reductions in energy prices, they're not coming down fast enough. No, unfortunately, and you know, again, Maybe extra pressure should be put on the, the energy companies out there that are making mass profits, huge, huge profits. Now, I'm nothing against a business that makes profit because if you don't make profit, you go you you go bust basically. But if they're making mass profits, somebody needs to step in and take control here, and 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 not stand at the outside uh, saying that we can't uh, interfere in the running of their businesses. We certainly uh, have have done through the years uh, have you know, bailed out uh, banks, we bailed out this, we bailed out that, but we seem to have no say when it comes to, uh, you know, maybe sitting around the table and forcing energy companies to reduce their energy costs immediately, because that would have a, a knock-on effect here uh, for local businesses. While it is decreasing, it's not decreasing fast enough, okay. and it's not de- it's decreasing. Right, so so a, mi- a mini-budget, you feel, is is the answer, and of course, somebody's saying, well done to Michael Collins for raising this, a mini-budget is the answer. We know that the government has money, so it, could, it would be able to help out the small medium business. Yes, they're continuously telling us that they're, I hate to say washing money, but that they have plenty of money, but at the end of the day, they had an opportunity in the budget uh, there just before Christmas to, to, to deal with this issue. They haven't dealt with this issue and now we find that there's uh, businesses going to the wall. We have to have some sort of a mini budget. They've covered up and call it something else but like these, uh, like the talking about the change of the warehousing scheme, that's going to go nowhere near what's easier. You need to go take the 13.5% back, back to 9%. And yes, if there's a separation between hotels and others, that has to be done. But all that's there. The, these, these issues are in place for the last number of years and no, nothing's happened. And these businesses are going going to the wall. And we're talking about 2018, 48th in November. You're talking about another... There could be another two, three hundred, uh, Patricia, because I know well, I've yeah. to people. And I did, I did, yeah, I did say at the, the start of the programme, I was looking at that insolvency from uh, PwC and they reckon a thousand uh, is going to go this year alone. OK, listen, Michael, we leave it there. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Uh, good morning to you. That is uh, Independent Doll Deputy for West Cork. That is Michael Collins. Uh, somebody says with regard to hospitality uh, suffering, uh, particularly the ones in uh, the city, a listener feels I no longer venture into the city 
city between the introduction of travel restrictions reduced width size for vehicle travel lanes. There's now bicycle lanes uh, everywhere, bus lanes, uh, which in conjunction with Irish weather conditions are relatively unused. And of course, parking, all parking spaces are taken and turned into pedestrian areas that are also relatively unused. While we, the motorists who hail from the county of Cork, are kept out. And when we do find a parking space, we have the watchful eye of the parking attendant uh, in all directions. It's a pity that the, those parking attendants are not members of Angarda Siakona because then when you park your car, you feel your car is going to be safe while you go in to eat a fine meal in a restaurant. If only we could go back to the days of the 60s and 70s, even for one week, and yet young people see how great our city was back then uh, and was well deserving of the title The Real Capital. Happy New Year to one and all at C103. Indeed, many happy returns. So people bemoaning how the city has changed is the reason why they don't venture in. Now, with this current very cold cold spell still gripping the country, we've received several calls to the programme wondering how rough sleepers are getting on, especially when overnight temperatures are dipping so low. Tonight, it's expected to be the coldest night of the week where temperatures could go below minus six degrees. Paul Sheen of Cork Simon joins me to talk about what kind of a week they've actually uh, had. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. And as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the programme. This this Thank kind you. of weather condition, this bitterly, bitterly cold weather, is this the kind of weather that you and your volunteers dread? Uh, it is. Um, but to be fair, Patricia, any time out there is is a tough time for anybody sleeping rough. Um, you know, it takes its toll on people's uh, physical health and mental health and well-being very quickly. You can see it. Uh, but at this time of year, of course, we're, we're especially concerned. Um, and, um, you know, there are people out there sleeping rough. There are people who are trying to survive. And uh, the sooner we get to m- milder weather, the better in our view. So how many beds do you have available in Cork and w- were you able to increase them this week? Well, in our own shelter in, in Anderson's Key, Patricia, we have around 74, 75 people a night staying there. That's been the case for the last seven or eight months. Uh, it's literally been packed to the rafters. It is increasingly difficult for us to create extra space. It's the highest number of people we've ever seen staying there. Um, any bit of extra space we can find, we will, of course, make available. But that's becoming in, increasingly difficult. Um, and unfortunately, we do have to turn people away because we simply just don't have the space. Um, so as a result, there are people sleeping rough out there. Now, um, obviously, we don't leave people uh, to fend for themselves. We give people as much extra clothing, extra blankets, extra sleeping bags as we can. And we make sure to check in on them every morning. And um, we do really encourage people to come into the day service in the morning, which opens at around nine. Um, it's for people sleeping rough, but, you know, make sure they get respite from the cold and get hot breakfast, a hot shower, a change of clothing. Um, and that's important. That's got to be extremely hard on you and volunteers to be able to say, sorry, we're full. Knowing that somebody it wants is, to come in out of the cold. Of course it is, Patricia, but like it's nowhere near as hard as it is for somebody who has to, to, to walk away and find somewhere to bed down. Um, and, you know, um uh, bedding down in the city centre is is not safe. Let's be frank about it. Um, people try to find somewhere where they're hidden away, um, and somewhere that might get them out of 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 the wind. 
Um, but, you know, that can be difficult and challenging. And wh- where do they go, Paul? Well, you know, some people are very visible and I'm sure anybody walking in the city centre in, in the mornings or in, in the middle of the night will see people. Um, but that's only uh, the tip of the iceberg. Quite often people will move beyond the city centre to find somewhere that uh, they're not so visible, that um, that offers them some level of safety, if, if that's possible, when you're sleeping under the stars. Um, and that gives them some level of, of security themselves, you know, that they might get a, a bit of shot eye during the night. Most rough sleepers will tell you that they sleep with one eye open anyway, Patricia. So, you know, the quality yeah. of sleep is, is going to be pretty much zero. So, so have you an average, if there can be an average figure, on the numbers? That, For example, how many do you reckon would have been sleeping on the streets last night, which was bitterly cold last night? It was. And, you know, it's been... You know, we, we, we see the temperatures dropping to zero and minus one, but there is a wind chill too, yeah. Patricia, and people might be familiar with that. And and because of the wind, it might drop to minus three, minus four, minus five, you know. Um, but it it really varies from night to night. One, some nights you might see 10, 11 people sleeping rough. Some nights you might see upwards of 20, 25, 30 people sleeping rough. It does vary from night to night. Um, and, you know, we don't have the resources to go to every spot that we know where people are sleeping rough uh, every morning, but we do our best to get there. I mean, I, I've been out with the, the the outreach team once or twice in weather like this, uh, Patricia, and, you know, they head out there not knowing what to expect in weather like this. Uh, you meet people at six in the morning who are up and about just moving to try and get some warmth into their body. You see people who are just about waking up. Uh, but the, I think that the, the worst of all is, you know, having to wake people up just to make sure that they're OK. Mm. And and the sense of the relief you see on people's faces, just that there is somebody there checking in on them is, is palpable, you know. And it's, when we, as I say, we had a number of calls in this week from people wondering and asking about rough sleepers is one of the reasons that we reached out to you. But, uh, you know, lots of people, when they talk about rough sleepers, you know, they they, they speak about their, that they're all Irish people. Um, is it the case that some of them are migrants as well, Paul? Of course, yeah. I mean, we live in a multicultural society. It's to be expected that you will see some people for whom it hasn't worked out um, and you end up uh, sleeping rough. Um, Sometimes I think for for that group of people, it's the worst of all because they're completely disconnected. You know, they're in a a city that they're not as familiar as you or I might be with. They might not have as as good social support networks as, as you or I might have. Um, they're completely disconnected from family. Quite often they might even be telling their family that they're sleeping rough. Um, and, you know, they are, I think, of all the, the groups of people sleeping rough, the most isolated and, and possibly the most vulnerable. Well, and I was reading figures um, earlier this week from the Health Research uh, Board uh, that a total of 121 homeless people died in the the, the latest figures for for 2020. It was a 31% increase on the previous year. And of the 121, 23 uh, were rough sleepers. Each each of those deaths, Paul, a life lost. They don't seem to get as much media attention as they would have once upon a time. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if we come, become immune to it, you know. Sometimes I wonder, are we just seeing so much of it now that it is becoming the norm? Um, I hope that is not the case. Yeah, of of those 121 in, in 2020, 20 were in Cork. Um, and, you know, there's a, a very specific definition of, of uh, homelessness. Um, but 
quite often people die because of of what the post-mortem result might might describe as poisoning. So that's probably a, a, a drug overdose. But you also see people who die because of drowning, because of hanging. Um, it's a grim read, it really is. Mm. And it just goes to show you how vulnerable people are when they become homeless. I mean, people get pushed into homeless for all sorts of reasons. More often than not, you know, it's, it's a whole complex range of, of issues and traumatic experiences in people's childhood and whatnot. Um, and it just demonstrates how vulnerable that group of people are. Um, and, you know, the humane thing to do is to address it and address it effectively because everybody deserves their life to live as, as best they can. And when you talk about people being um, pushed into homelessness, only this morning on our news bulletin we're reporting that what's been described as the dysfunctional rental market is driving people mm. into homelessness. And that's from your own uh, own group, the, the Simon community. Yeah, I mean, uh, we publish a locked out of the market report a few times a year. The most recent one for December was published today. And when you talk about grim reading, that's grim reading for anybody stuck in an emergency shelter, because for the most part, they will be depending on the private rented sector for a very quick exit out. And for a long time now, that's been shut off to them. Um, you know, there were just two properties in Cork uh, available within the uh, HAP rates. That's the housing uh, assistant payment for, for people. Um, and those two properties were just for a couple with one child or a couple with two children. The majority of people in emergency accommodation are single people, single households. And for a long time now, there's never been anything in the private rental sector for them. And we're seeing their number uh, becoming long term homeless increase. And, you know, from our experience, when people become long term homeless, it becomes a lot more difficult to get out because, you know, people become institutionalised, people lose all hope. Um, and, um, you know, that that's the worst scenario of all. Yeah. So if, if you're if you're single and you're homeless, you're pretty much at the bottom rung of the ladder when it comes to housing. It's incredible. It's a bit like our housing situation just is so, so needs to be uh, dealt with. Listen, uh, Paul, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks a million. Uh, good morning to you. That is uh, Paul Sheehan of the uh, Cork Simon community. A lot of commentary coming into us this morning. Firstly, reaction to Paul Sheehan, who joined us in the last hour from the Simon community. We just wanted to check in with Paul uh, to see what kind of a week they've been having with this current cold snap uh, with rough sleepers. And it's just heartbreaking to think of people who did want to, because there will always be rough sleepers who won't take shelter for a variety of different uh, reasons. And they always opt to, to sleep out under the stars, even even though uh, the great volunteers who work with homeless people do everything that they can to try to encourage them in. But to think that somebody wants to come in out of the cold and then there just really wasn't, literally wasn't room at the inn. It's going to be so difficult, not just on the volunteers, but as Paul said, on the person that has to walk away, knowing that they don't have shelter for that night and knowing the temperatures are going to go minus five, minus uh, six uh, degrees. Uh, Patricia, uh, okay, some of the commentary out of my interview with Paul. Somebody says, Patricia, Irish people are dying homeless on the streets, nowhere to go. 75% when surveyed said we should take no more immigrants. Why can't the government see this and why can't we look after our own? Hi Patricia, there is a hotel in Ross Grey 
uh, namely, name, let's name it Racket Hall Hotel with a hundred warm beds and food up for grabs. Would it not be a good idea to use it for homeless Irish uh, people, especially when we're hearing from Cork Simon that there are people with no place to stay at night. Someone else says, yet there are plenty of houses and shelter for the people coming into this country uh, who want to be housed and get everything while our own Irish homeless don't get nothing. Well, okay, just to point out as well, there are, and the last time I looked into it, there's 600 uh, asylum seekers who come into this country that, uh, I don't know if they're all sleeping rough, uh, but they weren't able to get any accommodation from the government. So that's only going to add to the homeless shelters problems uh, as well. Hi Patricia, I listened with great interest to that gentleman, Paul, from the Simon community. I have a major difficulty welcoming asylum seekers with open arms and our own, many through no fault of their own, end up homeless. This is something, there's something that the government, uh, that's something the government is doing and that's simply wrong. And that is from a Killarney uh, listener. And just a final one on homeless. Uh, Patricia, it was such a loss the day that they decided to ban bedsits. They provided affordable accommodation for single people who are now more likely to be homeless, as Paul from the Simon Community, your speaker, outlined. Uh, Yeah, I, I have to say the day that they decided, and I know they decided to do it because they felt that bedsits were, were not ideal accommodation for people, but anyone who had lived in, in a bedsit said it was fine. They didn't mind sharing a bathroom. Uh, but it was just literally, it was legislation came in and they decided that was it, we're getting rid of all the bedsits. But there was nothing there then to replace. Bedsits were affordable accommodation for single people. And while deciding to get rid of it because people deserved to have their own bathrooms, their own showers, uh, etc. But not having anything in place to replace them with, they, you know, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse, isn't it? They should have waited until they had enough suitable accommodation for uh, single people. And what Paul was talking about was the report that's out from the Simon community locked out of the market, isn't that what it's called? And um, they were showing about that it's a dysfunctional rental market that is actually driving some people into uh, homelessness. And Paul was saying the the people most likely to find themselves homeless are single people because there literally is lack of accommodation for somebody to rent for a single person. 0818103103 And then on migrant and people protesting uh, against migrants coming to their area and the commentary that I mentioned about Heather Humphreys who was pointing to the fact that um, how she, she was in the doll yesterday and she was saying that she often wonders how so many people can be out protesting in the middle of the day when the majority of us are out at work. Why are they not working? Basically, she's asking. A West Cork listener says, hope this message finds you well. Heather Humphreys seems to have forgotten that we, the citizens of this country, have a right to a peaceful assembly it is in our constitution. She's also giving out about people who are on welfare payments in this country and thinks that a lot of people on social welfare payment are nothing but spongers and troublemakers, which is simply not true. A lot of people in this country have nothing against immigrants coming in. They just want... Uh, and especially those that come here wanting a better life for themselves. So so a lot of companies are hiring non-nationals. Why? Because of cheaper labour. A lot of people on a welfare payment in Ireland, they're not lazy, they're not troublemakers. They have to make very hard decisions with regards to money to uh, pay uh, bills, etc. 
and that's from a West Cork listener. Minister Heather Humphrey sends somebody on the other side, said is an absolute gem and a treasure and she needs to be protected. She was spot on in her comments about protesters in Ross Grey. Good on her for calling it as it uh, is. And then a Formoy resident, of course, there's also a protest going on in uh, Formoy outside a former B&B. Hi, Patricia, I'm a Formoy resident born in St. Patrick's Hospital in Formoy in the 60s. I still live in Formoy with my family. My problem is that in the town of Formoy, we do not have a hotel or a guest house. We have nothing like that in a town the size of Formoy. But what we do have is a guest house that will house 56 Ukrainian well, 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 we, I don't know if it's Ukrainian men I think it's is it asylum is it, is it international protection. Anyway the, it's to be used for international protection. Um, uh, we also have protesters who are outside that guest house who I believe are flogging a dead horse. Let's face it Patricia our government is screwing us left right and uh, centre. The government needs to get a grip. And that's from a Formoy resident, Pat in Formoy. Uh, this is an interesting point. This is on hotels that that one day are a functioning hotel, as Racket Hall Hotel in Ross Grey was, and how we can overnight turn from a fully functioning working hotel into an asylum centre or, or a place to house asylum seekers. Pat in Formoy says, when nursing homes closed earlier this year, uh, they changed the rules so that a nursing home would have to wait two years before they were allowed to reopen as an asylum centre. Why don't we have the same rules for hotels? I've never heard this uh, mentioned. No, I haven't either. And I'm assuming it's because the government and the Department of Integration and the Department of Housing are so desperate to find accommodation for the asylum seekers that are coming into this country that they're, you know, if a hotelier goes and says, I want to turn it into an iPass centre, they'll take the hand and all off them. I'm assuming that's the reason. Caroline in Crosshaven says, I agree somewhat with what Minister Heather Humphreys says, as over the years, those who are protesting and shouting the loudest are often those that are not working. What is ironic about many of those protesters and the people on the far right is that they're against everything the government, they're against everything to do with the establishment, yet they're very happy to take their money off the state every week by way of their social welfare payment but still they're bashing the hand that feeds them. However I do feel that there are towns like Ross Grey where protests are going on where people are a rota happens for the protesting so many of those are actually people who are working and they're genuine with their concerns and fears. We saw how some of those protesting brought toys for those who came into the hotel the other day but locals are concerned about the future of their town and the impact the closure of the hotel will have on the area. And yes, you will have protesters who will be out shouting the loud, loudest and seem to get the coverage but there are genuine locals who have genuine concerns and that's why they feel they have to stand up for their area. 0818103103 Michael and Skibbereen says I was delighted to hear that email that you read out at the start of the programme from that lady Edwina and her twins and the lady who was standing behind her in Lidl in Kantark who paid her for her food shop €106 because Edwina's card was uh, playing up. Michael and Skip says, isn't it great to see and hear that there are really decent people out there? Yeah, I loved I loved that email uh, as well. And then Michael says, with regard to those protesting, it's the government, Michael says, are to blame. They're lying to the people. I feel if they were more honest, if there was more open consultation with local people, for example, if they say to a local community that building is going to be used for X, Y and Z, Michael reckons there would be no problems, problems where people hate lies uh, 
and that's why people are angry. Well, I know the Department of Integration was saying that they can sometimes cannot give too much advance notice on a particular building that they're going to use as an iPass centre because they're fearful that the building will be targeted and they're fearful that it'll be targeted for protesters or worse, it'll be targeted and uh, maybe an arson attack as we've seen in the past. So it's one of the reasons that they have to give not as much notice. But yeah, I, I know the point you're making. There should be more open and frank uh, consultation. And then, thank you for that. And then on uh, Carvery lunches, and this was kicked off when somebody was talking about how restaurants have put up their prices and I was saying it's to do with the cost of doing business and there's a fine line between what customers will be able to afford and there's a line then if cafes and restaurants and hotels charge too much, there's a tipping point and people simply won't go. Footfall goes down, business goes down and then you could end up with a closure. Stephen says, I had to smile when I heard your listeners comment about the price of Carvery in a local hotel. I had an identical experience just before Christmas. I went into a certain well-known establishment and I saw that the Carvery was on offer for €14.95. Wasn't really that hungry. And I said, could I just have a half portion of the Carvery? And the lady, the gentleman serving said, absolutely no problem. Stephen went to pay and it was €12.95, just €2 off. I felt it was a bit mean and a bit petty if you ask me. It's basically the same uh, price. Yeah, But I wonder when you look at the portion Is it exactly a half portion? Is it half of what was on offer for the €14.95? Now, I don't think anyone expects a half-plate carvery to be half price. But I think what people are saying is uh, it should be, there should be a little more than €2 just taken off the price. 0818 Just want to go uh, very quickly to an email that came in from uh, Michael uh, to Patricia at c103.ie. And I'm interested to hear, do people watch uh, over Monday and Tuesday, there was two programmes on RTE. One was the last uh, the last priests in Ireland and then the one on Tuesday night was the last nuns in Ireland. Well, Michael uh, watched and I watched the last nuns in Ireland so I didn't get to watch it until uh, yesterday. Really, really powerful piece and I would say to anyone, they're both on the player, they're worth the watch. But Michael says, Patricia, the Irish nuns were an incredible pillar of the church and society. Looking back over the years, some will also admire and respect the nuns while others will only portray them as, other, uh, as otherwise but genuinely they should stand up with their hand on their heart and tell the good that the nuns did in this country where others failed miserably especially parents and governments now Michael has a different view on nuns because I know whenever we raise the issue of nuns we will have people listening to this programme who were very hurt in the past at the hands of nuns and I'm you know and I fully understand it's very hard to get over that hurt but Michael is seeing nuns from a different view. So he says, nuns were used and abused by the arms of the state and society as a matter of fact. They served their country well and paid a high price for it. They served as mothers to children when parents couldn't or mothers wouldn't be allowed. Each and every child born has a father and a mother. In times past, if a teenage woman fell teenage girl, fell pregnant. She was classed as a woman of, of a lower socioeconomic group or a fallen woman and was practically ostracised by both family and society. They were sent away to the nuns, very often on the carrier of a bicycle in the middle of the night, some never to return. Where were the fathers? Uh, very often happily married men are often employers who these ladies, while these ladies' lives have been destroyed. The nuns established many hospitals, nursed the sick with great care 
care and comfort while dying. They established schools, convents and other institutions that would never have been established only for them as the government couldn't do it. They ran hospitals like clockwork. No such thing as people on trolleys or waiting lists back then. The hospitals were spotless from floor to ceiling. Their schools and convents produced some of our country's brightest academics that we've ever had. They looked after the churches, the bishops, the priests and still do to this present day where the few that are left are available. Look at the outstanding work they have done with the homeless and are still doing. I could fill another page but that's enough for one day. Thanks to the nuns of this country for the tremendous work that they did for the people of Ireland and I hope and pray that they will one day become leading lights in this country again. Never ever underestimate the power of prayer. Thanking you and that's from uh, Michael. As I say if you watch that programme uh, The Last Nuns in Ireland your thoughts welcome to 0818103103 C103 Jobs An experienced welder slash fabricator is required for the Ovens Balancolic area three to five years experience is necessary CVs please to jobsireland2024 at gmail.com an Arctic truck driver is wanted for the Charleville area. Now, a full CE licence is essential. Some crane experience would also be an advantage. Call 087-947-4294. Excavator drivers, banks, men and general operatives are wanted for a full-time position in trenching works throughout West Cork. Call 87 087- Six four eight eight six seven eight, and a full-time office administrator is required for an office in Cork City. Oh eight seven seven zero six eight five three three. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. cmig.ie C103's Irish Sunday is the big show on your radio. Sunday mornings from 10. Four hours of all-time favourites from Michael English to Claudia Buckley. Mary Black to Declan Nurney. And the High Kings to Louise Morrissey. It's Cork's greatest hits, guaranteed. And everyone is Irish. Join us Sunday mornings from 10am on C103. (laughs) Call Patricia with your comment. 0818 103 103. Cork today on C103. Now, Cork County councillors have expressed dismay that large swathes of North Cork are not being promoted by state-funded bodies, which means the area is losing out on tourism business. The issue was highlighted by North Cork councillor John Paul O'Shea at the Northern Division uh, meeting. And uh, John Paul joins me this morning. Good morning to you, John Paul. You're you're welcome to the programme. Okay, what parts of North Cork do you feel is losing out the most by not being promoted? Well, I suppose, Patricia, to give you a bit of context in this, we've all heard about, I suppose, the wide Atlantic Way and Ireland's ancient east. They're the the fault Ireland national tourism brands that are available across the country. And we've had a new one uh, joined in most recent times, the Monster Vales, uh, who are a brand, a brand promoted by fault Ireland as well. And now the latest one is the Ireland Hidden Heartlands. Um, but as you know, Cork is such a big county that we're, um, I suppose, when initially the Wild Atlantic Way came out, um, all of County Cork was included in the Wild Atlantic Way. And uh, to be fair, North Cork is not near 
So it wasn't suitable that it wouldn't be, uh, I suppose, part of that uh, programme. And then North Cork was moved to Ireland's ancient east um, uh, by Fall to Ireland. And um, unfortunately, that has now ceased again. And now we've joined Ireland's hidden heartlands. Um, but on, I suppose I, look, I've been following this for the last number of years and trying to promote the tourism um, capabilities in North Cork. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, the Ireland's Hidden Heartlands, the latest, um, I suppose, national tourism brand that North Cork is part of, only encompasses the Belly Horror region of North Cork, which includes, say, from Liscarle down towards um, Charleville and on towards Mitchellstown. So it leaves out a huge area in North Cork, which is not being promoted uh, from a tourism perspective, which I think is unacceptable. Do we know why? It's been excluded. Um, we don't. And I think, you know, Cork County Council has a huge responsibility here. And I was very, very clear in my, uh, I suppose, um, recommendation on Monday. Cork County Council has executives sitting on these boards uh, in terms of the Munster Vales and the Ireland's Hidden Heartlands. And we should not, as a local authority, be dividing up in our Cork and giving some bits of it uh, to a national tourism band and leaving the others out. Effectively, what we have here this morning, our producer, as we speak, is that we have West Cork and Mid Cork looked after by the, Mid- the Wild Atlantic Way. We have Ireland's Ancient East looking after East Cork. And we have Ireland's Hayden Heartlands looking after a scalp of North Cork and all other areas in North Cork, which includes Fermoy, back to Mallow and back to the Duhalla region, which I represent at the moment. And this is all being not supported by any tourism brand in the country, which I think is unacceptable. So I think it's up to Cork County Council's tourism directorate now uh, to make sure we have uh, all of North Cork included in some tourism brand going forward. What's this Munster Vales one? That seems an obvious one, does it? That we could go into that? And it's a, and it's a wonderful brand. They're a company that, are, that was set up and are associated with Tipperary County Council. And would you believe a Cork County Council funds them to an element every single year? Um, but they have only decided to take in a certain area, which is the Ballyhora region area of Cork, in the promotion of their tourism um, from, from around. So they cover like Tipperary, uh, Limerick, North, some elements of Narcock, as I said, down into Waterford. And it's a wonderful tourism brand. And you see them advertising uh, a lot of what's available from a tourism perspective right across those areas. But I think it's unacceptable uh, for, and I think all my colleagues in Cork and the Northern Division of Cork County Council supported this on Monday. It's unacceptable to be dividing areas in North Cork and advertising one area and then not advertising the other. Okay, can you explain to us who decides which area goes into which particular tourism brand? Well, each one of these tourism brands are set up by Fault Ireland and supported by Fault Ireland and they okay. have a board. And my, I brought this matter up um, three years ago decided to accept elements of North Cork and not accept the full elements of it. And we took it as a, as a council that time to ask for the Munster Vales board to take on board the entire North Cork region. And that was rejected at that time. But I think we knew, do need to go back and ask that the entire North Cork region uh, is included. I represent North Cork. I don't represent one area and the other area not included. It's, it's important as we kind of promote the area of North Cork to make sure that the whole area of North Cork is included going forward. And it doesn't make any sense. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Um, to leave one area of North Cork out out of a tourism brand when all the other areas of County Cork are, are included. included in yeah, some yeah. Brand. There's, there's an absolute level of uh, unfairness uh, there. What attractions are in the area that you believe should be promoted and by not being promoted, they possibly are missing out? Yeah, well, as you know, Patricia, from living yourself in Norcock for the last number of years, we're very, very lucky in Norcock. We have a lot of mountains, we have a lot of walkways, we have a lot of architecture, and we've invested an awful lot of money from Cork County Council perspective in, in, in promoting um, those tourism facilities right across uh, Cork County and Norcock. We have a huge, invested huge monies in terms of our walkways and our mountains. We've invested huge money in Mallow Castle, for example, uh, in the last five to six years, and that's not included in any tourism brand. But, but according to Munster Vales, they can promote Danville House and Gardens, no problem, six miles down the road. That's true. Like it doesn't make any no, sense. No, The OPW and, and, and recently they, they, opened Anne's Grove Gardens, Patricia, yeah. in Castletown Roach. It's not included. And that's a wonderful, wonderful facility. And then, of course, it's an area uh, steeped in the tradition of fishing, probably some of the best fishing uh, in the country is in that area. In the country and we have wonderful Irish culture traditions in of music and arts uh, in our areas well in Cork with the, with the Homish Leave Rukura and none of that is included in anything. So I think from talking to people that are in, in my area of Newmarket in Kenturk or in Mallow uh, that I've been talking to in the last number of days since I brought this motion up is they are really, really disappointed and that Cork County Council has let this, let this happen and it is up to Cork County Council and the Tourism Director now to uh, I suppose make the case to Fall and, and make the case to all these two tourism brands to make sure that North Cork is not divided into the future and it's all bring forward as one. Yeah, and I read lately and, lately, and I was delighted to see it, that Cork is the most Googled county in this country from a tourism point of view. But it means that if North Cork, if parts of North Cork are not included in any of the tourism brands, then they won't feature probably in any of those searches that come up by tourists. Absolutely. Absolutely, Patricia. And my colleague, Councillor Kay Dawson, brought up a very good point uh, on Monday at the meeting that she's from Mitchellstown. But if if they, if the people that visited Mitchellstown want to go to the Fermoy and they looked up any of the tourism brands uh, that I've just spoken about, there's none, nothing in Fermoy included. There's nothing in Mallow included, nothing in Kenturk included, nothing in the market included. And that is just unacceptable. When people come uh, to Narcork, we want them to experience what is available in Narcork and to enjoy a couple of days here. And if you're excluding... Um, a, a cohort of the area 
well then that is unacceptable in my view. Okay, Ben in Castletown Road agrees 100% with uh, Councillor John Paul O'Shea and he points to the race course in Mallow. It's promote, promoted as Cork race course Mallow. It should always have been the other way around Mallow race course uh, Cork. And uh, listen, we argue that one, Ben, ad nauseum here on the programme when it was originally uh, named. So you got a very positive reaction, uh, John Paul, when you raised this at the Northern Division. Yes, meeting. indeed. And I'm very grateful Look to the support of our new division manager, Kevin Morey, who was uh, at the meeting on Monday. And he is, uh, I suppose, we've agreed as council now that we would refer this uh, to the Tourism uh, Strategic Policy Committee in Cork County Council, where I suppose all things tourism are discussed. Uh, and if that is going to the next meeting of that, and I will be I, I will be in attendance at that meeting, hopefully. And um, I will put my uh, best foot forward, I think, for, for North Cork. It is, I think, something that I suppose, look, has uh, materialised. I don't think there was any um, ill fate of anybody to to make sure that that happened. But I think the result is wrong for Narcork. And I think we do need to make it right. Uh, We do need to encompass the entire Narcork region uh, when we are uh, promoting um, tourism in Narcork. Um, There's beautiful sites in Charleville and Mitchellstone, um, but there's also just as as nice sites in uh, Kenturk and Newmarket and and Mallow as well. And we need to make sure that we're all fighting the same bat uh, together and to ensure that we get as many tourists uh, into Narcork as much as possible in the years to come. And and we need to tell people about it because it's a little bit like when we decide to go visit, be it anywhere in Ireland or if we go anywhere abroad, that's what you do. You start Googling, you start looking up things and of course all of those brands, they pop up in search uh, and that's where you're going to Absolutely. get your in- that's where you're going to get your information from. And 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 the thing about being part of a tourism brand, Patricia, is that it's 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 totally different um, to starting from your own. If you're part of a national brand like the Wild Atlantic Way, like Ireland's Ancient East, like the, what the Wild Atlantic Way has done for West Cork mm. uh, is is just awesome. And like our councillors from West Cork would tell you that. Same with the Ireland's Ancient East, it has worked really really well for East Cork. Um, and we do need to be part of a national brand because we do need the national support, the national market marketing, etc. to be done uh, to encourage people to come to North Cork. Okay, and someone else says, uh, would would North Cork consider opening a motorhome park? It really is a growing tourism sector. And I suppose if it becomes part of a brand, you look at things like that then, do you? We do indeed. So we have a motorhome policy coming up in in uh, our council, actually, in the tourism uh, SPC uh, over the next couple of weeks. So we will be promoting that uh, as a policy. We'll be encouraging maybe, particularly in our one or two, I suppose, motorhome um, locations would be opened as part of that project. So that is actually coming up in our tourism SPC uh, shortly. That would, that would be terrific. That certainly would bring people into the area. OK, keep us posted on this one, uh, John Paul. In the meantime, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning. Uh, good morning to you. That is North Coast. Cork, Fine Gael Councillor John Paul O'Shea, 0818 103 103. Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Greywood Arts Creative Hub, which is based in Killa. They're working with artist Katie Nolan on an intergenerational and intercultural textile project that's going to run across this year. And to find out what it's all about, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by multidisciplinary artist uh, Katie Nolan. Good morning to you, Katie. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well and you're welcome to the programme. I suppose I have to ask you first, what is a multidisciplinary artist? 
Um, well, I suppose my work, uh, a lot of people would say, oh, what do you paint when you describe yourself as an artist? And an art, a multidisciplinary artist will work with multiple mediums. So for me personally, I work primarily with video, sound, installation and textiles, but in a sort of a very uh, conceptual way. OK, and for this project, you are looking for stories and memories from Y'all carpets. So what is it, former workers or maybe their families? Absolutely, yes. So creativity, I suppose, lies and lives and breathes through some sort of social exchange. And our aim with this project is to develop relationships where the voice, the memories of these workers is made present. Um, and we want to include them in the process of creative expression. So we're hoping to make a space for participants to have meaningful engagement, for creativity and for a sort of a, a conceptual play with artistic practice. So we're looking for participants. Um, we're opening it up to ex-staff, their families, their friends, really anybody who has a connection with the institution that was the old carpets. And we'd love to hear their recollections, um, their stories, their memories um, of those who worked there over the years. Um, and we're hoping that uh, they will bring, you know, any memorabilia, any documents, any photos, etc., with them. Um, and this is just the initial stages of it. Uh, so it's, it's as I say, the initial contact is a social event. Yeah, I love this. Where you, they can you, make those reconnections. Yeah, I know? love the idea of this. You're, you're doing a planned uh, get together where you're just inviting me. I think it's actually this day week, isn't it? It's seven o'clock in the evening. Uh, you, you want people to just come along um, and sit and, uh, and, and chat. So, so I'm assuming what you're hoping is that people who worked at Yall Carpus over the years, maybe some of them have lost contact with each other, will suddenly get to reconnect with people again. Absolutely. And their families, because I'm sure, you know, uh, there's a, a, I suppose, a section of uh, the people, the, the ex-staff who would sadly have passed on. Yeah. Um, so maybe their children have memories and stories to tell as well about uh, the escapades that <laughs> went on, because, you know, it was a big staff. I think the, the network of employees reached quite far into West Waterford, into lots of parts of County Cork. Um, and at, at some point, there was an excess of 800 people, as far as I know, employed by uh, your carpets. So it was obviously a vibrant community of workers. And we're really hoping that uh, as many people as can will come along and share their stories. Yeah, and I know it was known locally as the Carpet Factory. That's what people refer to it as. And, and I'm assuming because it was there from, I think it opened in the, in the late 60s and it was there until I think it closed in, in 2002. There was probably some families where, where some generations would have gone through that if a mum or a dad had been working there, a son or a daughter might have followed them into the, car, into, into the Carpet Factory. Absolutely, yes. And that was the the way it was back in, I think it actually opened in the 50s as oh, was far it as the I'm 50s? aware. Okay. I, yeah. Yes, yeah. Far I have back a vague recollection of somebody telling me it was 1956. Whoa. So, you know, it was a really well-established um, employer in the area. And yes, of course, in those days, you know, a father, son, mother, daughter would follow each other into the same industry. So there's a kind of a rich and vibrant um, social and economic sort of culture 
that's that's um, needs to be sort of explored and and that's the aim is to is to sort of gather all of that lovely history and bring those people back together again. And and Katie, or is this, I don't know if this is a daft question or if it's a question that's too early for you to answer. What do you visualise your work will look like at the end of the project? Well, I suppose I don't actually know. Yeah. Um, I do have lots of ideas. And where the idea came from was um, I, I'm an artist, but I also work part time with Corky TB and I teach uh, a range of art and crafts to in community education. And one of the classes I gave was in Yall, spinning and weaving um, last spring. And one of the participants came up one day and gifted me a bag of old Yall carpet wool that was oh. still on the on the this you know, the the wound around the uh, tubes, the cardboard tubes. So. You know, it was it, it. I brought it home. I didn't know what to do with it. And I kept looking at it and musing over it. But I knew this was a rich and potent resource and I just couldn't let it go. So I ended up doing a residency last summer again in Greywood Arts in Killa, where I spent a week sort of exploring the possibilities of developing these fibres into some sort of soft sculptural form. And I think after about two days, I realised that you know, I was banging my head against a brick wall. What I really needed to do was to go back and meet the people. Um, and that's when I contacted the lady who had originally gifted me the old carpet wool. Her name is Kay Donnelly and her husband is Tom Donnelly, who joined Yol Carpets as uh, the tea boy in the 50s and retired several years later when it closed as um, the production manager. So he gave his whole life to this industry and they very kindly welcomed me into their home where we had a lovely evening um, and a very uh, engaging discussion about his memories and all of the memorabilia that he has. So that's what sparked my desire to put forward some sort of a, to get some funding to to bring this to life. Um, and thanks to uh, the Creating Connections um, initiative, which is an initiative of Cork County Council's Creative Ireland programme. They had a call out uh, last um, autumn and uh, my, myself and Greywood Arts put forward a joint submission. So, yeah, our aim is to encompass the kind of socio-economic and cultural heritage of the institution that was your country. Well done. Well, well, well done. And you're going to at this uh, special evening next uh, Thursday, January 25th, 7 o'clock at the Greywood Arts Creative Hub in Killa. You, you're going to, did I read you're going to do a demonstration on uh, weaving and spinning? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I learned to weave about 10 years ago. Yeah. I had a previous life in the financial services industry and during the crisis, uh, the financial services, or the financial crisis, I took redundancy and uh, at 50 went back to college and studied art, something that I had wanted to do all my life. So I did a BA in visual art and then I went on and I did an MA in art and environment. Um, and... Um, you took up Sorry, weaving. You learned your, your, your you, initial you, question. Yeah. Excuse you, you me. Let, I said you, you're going to be weaving and spinning. You you took up weaving. Yes. You took up weaving. Yes. And when so, you say so spinning, when, I, when you say spinning, are you talking about an old spinning wheel? 
Yes. Oh. Now, it's not an old one. I have a new one that okay. was made by a man in Donegal about two years ago. Beautifully handmade spinning wheel. But yes, a spinning wheel. Yeah. But I will also demonstrate one of the most ancient methods of spinning uh, using just a drop spindle. So a stick and a weight. And um, yeah, so it sounds like a a terrific evening as well. Yeah, it should be fun. And I mean, primarily it's about getting people back together. You know what I mean? And and giving them the space to, um, you know, to have their their memories shared. Um, so it's 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 about them and about their their stories, really. OK, listen, we wish you luck with it, uh, Katie. And if anybody has any connections at all with uh, Yall Carpets and you'd be willing to go along next Thursday night, you can email greywoodhq at gmail.com. That's greywoodhq at gmail.com. Katie, I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that and good luck with the project. Many thanks, Patricia. Thank Cheerio. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Some of your commentary uh, coming in. We had that lovely chat with uh, Kate, Katie Nolan, the artist who's involved in a project that's going to focus around Yall Carpets and very much putting out a call for anyone who worked with Yall Carpets, anyone who had family members working in Yall Carpets. If you have any memories at all in connection with Yall Carpets, you're invited along to a special gathering that's going to happen next Thursday evening at between seven and half past eight at the the Greywood Arts Creative Hub. That's that wonderful hub that's in uh, Killa. Martin Inlismore says, Patricia, my father worked in the carpets in the 60s and the 70s. We lived in Lismore. He would often bring home homing pigeons for somebody who worked with him and we'd leave them off in Lismore to see would the pigeons make their way back to y'all. Also, my mother used to knit us gorgeous hoodies and it was made from the wool that was used for the carpets. I have great memories, says Martin in Lismore. That's exactly the type of memories that uh, Katie is looking for. And if you've got photographs to back up, I tell you what, she'd love to see if you have any photographs of you wearing those hoodies that she made from the car- the wool that came from the carpets in Yall. Oh, I would say she would be delighted with you, Martin, if you'd like to go along. And anybody who was involved with Yall Carpets, if you just obviously want to try and get an idea on the numbers that are going to attend, so you can email greywoodhq at uh, gmail.com. And thank you for your WhatsApp, uh, Martin. Now, on immigration and the protests that are going on at proposed immigration centres, John says, Patricia, Pather Tobin, the TD, uh, recently uh, spoke about the numbers of people who have come into this uh, country uh, to claim uh, asylum and he spoke about numbers and he spoke about deportation orders. The figures he gave were five 5,091 deportation orders were issued since 2018. But of that over 5,000 deportation orders, only 783 have left the country. And that was according to the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. So where are the other 4,308? This is a shambles. The government has lost control of the migration system. They now need to control the numbers of asylum seekers coming into this country. Are the chaos we are seeing now will only get worse, says John, and nobody wants to see that, John, for sure. Mary on the hotel in Ross Grey is wondering and asking, what about the staff of Racket 
Hall Hotel in Ross Grey. Are they now unemployed? And if so, will they now need to look for state benefits? Mary said, I feel it's awful that the government would go down this route. We need to know if the government went to the hotel or how did the situation come about that a fully functioning hotel could suddenly be flipped into a centre for asylum seekers. Also says Mary, when did the staff find out about the change of use of the hotel? Was it when everybody else uh, found out, i.e. in the uh, media? They were called into, all of the staff were called into a meeting um, literally on the night that the hotel closed. Up Up to then the hotel had been functioning normally and then the management obviously called in all of the staff and told the staff that as and from that day the hotel was going to cease functioning as a hotel and instead was going to be used as an IPAS uh, centre. So that's how staff found out. I can't find out the full number on what's happening with staff. I mean, obviously, <clears throat> it's going to convert into an IPAS uh, and we'll be hosting international protection applicants and they'll be doing it for the next 12 months as the contract with the hotel. So there certainly will be work available looking after the people living in the hotel. So I don't know from that if all of the staff members will be getting work or or not, or will some of them be let go, which would be absolutely awful to think about. Now, uh, thank you for your call, uh, Mary. Uh, Helen says, Patricia, I've worked all my life. I've paid taxes, purchased my own home. I've nothing against people coming into this uh, country, but what is what is making people angry is the fact that they receive pocket money. Money is given to them from the state when they arrive in this country and claim asylum. I welcome the reductions that are now going to be given to people coming from Ukraine. But my big bugbear is that I worked all my life and when I when I give up and get my pension I'll get the standard state pension I won't get a medical card because it's means tested my children are all working all paying high mortgages Uh, they will not go out they can't afford to go out and socialise why they simply can't afford it those who come to this country are receiving state benefits many of them are put up and they're fed so they can save whatever state benefits they've been given Um, not a lot of that money is spent in the local town so footfall will be down so businesses will be affected so while I have nothing against those coming in. I do think people are angry at the money that's handed over to uh, them while the rest of us have to work hard uh, and we don't claim state benefits are entitlements. Thank you for that Helen. Uh, Dan says, oh, sorry my screen is my screen has gone mad I mean sorry one sec <clears throat> my mouse is uh, doing all kinds of funny things on me okay if I can just go back down to some of those comments. Um, I have that one done. Okay, I'm going to have to leave it because my mouse has gone haywire on me. Let's do this first. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Kildallery Community Development, they're holding their weekly lotto draw and it's going to be held in the community office this afternoon. The jackpot this week is 12,000 and you can buy tickets in all local outlets or you can get them at the community office. The students of Coachford College are currently fundraising for Motor Neuron Ireland. Now over the course of a week the students will walk 1,000 laps of their school pitch with all the students walking together on the Friday for the last three laps. So they're asking for people to support them uh, in their work to raise money for Motor Neuron Ireland and you can do that by donating through idonate.ie 
forward slash fundraiser uh, Coachford College uh, Walk. The Rossmore Variety Show is back this Friday and Saturday and they're fundraising for palliative care for Cancer Connect and for the Kilmean Community Development Association and also proceeds are going to the Kilmean GAA. Tickets are available from gr8events.ie and you just scroll to Rossmore Variety uh, Show. And a fundraising coffee morning in aid of Gaza will be held in the Culture Lawn in Newmarket. And that's happening this Saturday morning from 12 p.m. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Returning to some of your texts and comments coming in, uh, Dan, this is on asylum uh, seekers. I was watching a news uh, report the other night where one of the asylum uh, seekers who's home homeless in Dublin at the moment because I think there's about 600 well up to I think Monday there was about 600 uh, homeless he said on the news that he had paid 10,000 euro to be trafficked into this country yeah I saw that guy he came from Egypt came here for a, a better life uh, Dan says equally 10 of the 14 people who were discovered in the container in Rosslare has vanished I think they were also trafficked for large uh, sums. Surely the method of transfer to Ireland needs urgent attention with the British law on transfer of migrants to Rwanda to be processed. That was approved yesterday, you know well, where they will end up going to, says Dan. Well, I know the ones that came in in Ross Lair, they were never planning on coming to Ireland. They were trying to make it to the UK. So um, the powers that be reckon that's where they've gone. They've gone They've gone on a ferry and they've gone over to, uh, to England because many people have contacts. They've got family members so they're going to family and they just you know they don't declare that they're in the country at all and then they live with uh, family members and they do it for a better life than what they have come from and I sometimes think how bad is the life that they were leading the ones that get onto boats and ships and do very very perilous uh, journeys like getting into the back of a refrigerated uh, truck anyway thank you for your comments there just on nuns when I mentioned that programme that was on TV uh, this week on the last nuns in Ireland and there was another programme called The Last Priests in Ireland it's on the RT player if uh, you haven't seen it and Michael had watched both programmes but he wrote to us about the emailed us about the nuns and he has great, great time for nuns and the great work that they've done in this country. A Kerry listener says, Patricia, if the nuns were all so great, how come so many babies ended up in a sewer dead only be, to be discovered by the social historian Catherine Corliss in Tume? None of the nuns themselves succumbed to the diseases that the babies were afflicted with. And what exactly is, is meant by good nuns? If they were all that good, surely some of them would have shouted, Stop. Yeah, I, 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 I take it you didn't watch uh, the programme, The Last uh, Nuns in in Ireland, because I, I think there was a fear factor. I think possibly some of them did know there was wrongs going on, but they weren't able to stand up for themselves or for anyone else. And I also thought it was quite heartbreaking to, I think she was the provincial of the Sisters of Charity talking about, you know, paying back the money and paying redress. And you could see the hurt that she, when, you know, she realised what some of their sisters in their order had done and, and they very much, um, there are good nuns. Of course, there are good nuns, but there was also a number who never should have become nuns. They never, they never had vocations, but we lived in a time where it was almost the social thing to have any kind of social standing. You had a priest and a nun in the household, so people didn't have vocations. They were just uh, pushed in and uh, people went in and didn't even know what kind of a life that they were going in for. And I think out of that then, uh, 
became very, very frustrated men and women who went on to be bad priests and bad nuns. But yes, of course, there were really good, hardworking, honest nuns and priests and there still is uh, to this day. Someone else says uh, on nuns, Patricia, all I can say about nuns is the cruelty they inflicted on children in the classroom in Millstreet. We were strapped so hard, especially by three particularly vicious nuns when we were in third, fourth and fifth class. We we really had a very hard time. I'm in my 70s now and it makes me so annoyed to think about it. Thank God it looks like the end of the nuns. So why so why do people call out the so-called good ones? The so-called good ones turned a blind eye to what was happening. When I see the children going to school now and the lovely teachers they have and they're all so kind and gentle to them, uh, I personally think it's great to see that the nuns are gone from education. And I did say when I read out Michael's uh, email that there will be people listening who've been very, very hurt by members of religious congregations. And someone else uh, says that man, Michael, obviously was never in the care of the nuns and never abused by them. When I was 14, I was in a Magdalene laundry. There's somebody with a story to tell for sure. 0818103103. And here's a text in from somebody who just signs themselves a Cork listener. Hi, Patricia. I was really saddened to hear the lady speak on your 11 o'clock news waiting for her consultant appointment for a bulging disc and she's been waiting since 2022 and you can imagine the pain of a bulging disc. Well, we are waiting far too long for very painful conditions like that bulging disc. I finally attended my first appointment recently. My GP had put me on that list, wait for this, in 2015. The doctor had been in contact with the consultant's department numerous times since that original contact was made in 2015. That's nine years ago, but it obviously made little or no difference. And honestly, I'm wondering, will I be waiting just as long for my follow-up appointment. I'm in pain, very limited mobility. I've gone through a lot of medication over those last number of years and you can't do what most people in my age bracket should be, and I can't do what most people in my age bracket should be able to do. Maybe there are others in Cork that equally are suffering in uh, silence and might be able to share their story. I would feel far less isolated. Thank you, Patricia, for giving me a platform uh, to share my story. God, it's shocking. And actually, we touched on it yesterday when John Sheehan, the GP from Blackpool, was on and he was saying as a GP, he gets so frustrated by waiting lists and so much of his time is taken up because he has to, you know, rewrite letters, rewrite letters, you know, endless phone calls. Why is such and such a patient? Why are they still waiting? It it really is uh, shocking. I hope that now you're into the system with the consultant that you will get uh, sorted out. Uh, p- please keep in contact and let us know how you're getting on. 0818103103. Call out for pet questions, by the way, because Jane Pickett, our resident vet, will be joining us in a couple of minutes. But firstly, I want to stay on an animal theme because the Rural Animal Welfare Resource, known as Rower, and we only spoke to them last week on the programme when they were looking for volunteers for their charity shop in uh, Bantry. They operate across the West and Mid Cork area and they're made up of volunteers and it's a service that in particular operates, operates a trap and neuter and return uh, campaign uh, and, and of course along with the charity shop but the charity shop is to keep their work going uh, particularly with uh, the stray cats. Anyway we sent our reporter Stephen Fox down to Bantry. We asked him to go meet some of the volunteers and to find out about the work of Roar. So he met up with volunteer Sandy De Silva and uh, spoke with her about the work she carries out with Roar. 
My name is Sandy. I've been with Raw now volunteering for about 10 years. We're all volunteers. I manage the shop and 15 volunteers who are very grateful for who come in, cover the hours that the shop's open. I also do TNR, Trap New to Return. We're contacted by mainly farmers, but also people, you know, in sort of houses. Their cats have come to visit and they've started feeding and they start having kittens. So the big heads up is please get them spayed before you start feeding them because that would alleviate so many problems that is basically our aim is to try to get some sort of control on unwanted kittens in the West Cork area we cover quite a wide area there are only a few of us who are doing the TNR we do the trapping ourselves we also try to educate the customers who come in if anyone has any questions about animal welfare we'll always be happy to help where we can we do refer them often to Jennifer because she is a veterinary nurse so she'd know a lot more than we do we're mainly dealing with cats and never turn our back on any animal jennifer and myself last valentine's night were down in bantry bay trying to rescue a swan which looked quite poorly we would refer most dog inquiries to west cork animal welfare group because that is their thing and they are a rescue we're not a rescue how much of an area do you cover then you're based in Bantry here in West Cork, obviously yeah. the locality but is there more, how far yeah. afield do you go? We've done quite a lot in McCroom which is a long way because we go do the trapping, come back to take them to the vet and then they have to go back again and you're not guaranteed to get them all at one time so one large trapping could mean six journeys. Last summer I was out with Emily on Bear Island and everything in between really. Would there be similar services that that you would recommend to say people in the city or people in maybe East Cork or North Cork? Community cats they do cork so anything beyond McCroom and to be honest I think they do also cover McCroom so like us you know they're busy lack of people to do the job so if we can help out we will and I've referred people to them if we haven't been able to do something as well we try and work with each other because there aren't that many of us so it's nice to have someone to fall back on and also West Cork Animal Welfare to be honest they have a very small cattery because they are mainly dogs but they will also do a little bit of trapping but it is purely on a small basis you wouldn't be ringing them to do it like you would us they've solved a few problems as well a big question i think that a lot of would have would be around the whole trap neutral return what's the logic behind that why do you do it why do you promote it so heavily because a female cat can have three litters of kittens a year and all the females in those three litters can have kittens three times a year and on and on and on it's never ending we would never really get total control over it because there will always be people who don't know about us and think financially they're they're not going to be able to cope with it we will always help financially we do subsidize neutering anyway donations obviously we do need money to work so any donations are always very welcome because obviously the vets fees are our biggest outgoing also from from the health point of view whatever cancers that we can get cats can get and by spaying and neutering it does alleviate many of the cancers you know breast cancer testicular cancer womb infections kittens being born so much interbreeding 
They were born, you know, with terrible disabilities, sometimes no eyes, and just really, really awful. Of course, because there's nobody looking after them as such, they just have a very slow, awful death. So to keep the cats healthy and control their breeding, that is paramount, and that's what we're all working for and aiming at. Primarily, your funding comes from fundraising, or do you have sponsors, or how does that generally break down? We don't have sponsors as such. We get a small government grant. Mm. It is donations. If people are in a position to pay for the vets' fees for all the cats, because we can pick up 20 cats in one traffic, then that's obviously great because then the vets' bill is paid. But if people are unable to, then donations, the shop brings in quite a bit of our income. We also are part of Thriftify, where we can put goods that we would get a lot more for, some of the perhaps designer items or new items. We can get quite a bit more money for those on Thriftify. We have very good people who come in and donate to us. What would be the condition that a lot of the cats you find in? They need a food and shelter. They all need that. They would be fed and there's often a barn. So if they're being fed by somebody on a daily basis, they would be in fairly good condition and certainly able to breed. Um, but if they get something wrong with them, if they have a mucky eye or come to feed one day and they're limping, the person really can't do much about it because you can't handle them, you can't touch them. So they hopefully know about us, would call us in and we could trap them, take them for a vet check and get them spayed and neutered at the same time. Some of them, although they're feral, they do get to know the feeders, the guardians, as we call them quite well. And although they won't be able to pick them up, they might be able to, while they're eating, stroke them. But again, you still can't do anything with them. So we do get some that have to be euthanised, unfortunately. You'll get quite a few of the females with womb infections where they're just breeding and breeding and breeding all the time. To be fair, the guardians, they do feed the melon. They are quite good. So they're often really quite nice, healthy cats breeding away. <laughs> you said you do the trapping yourself. How would that work? It would just show you sort of what happens. I'm sitting in my car, my husband's there as well. My husband's great, he helps me. He tends to drive me places to do the trapping. So I've set up three traps and one cat has appeared. The food is down this end and there's a little platform they need to walk on. Traps are open the other end. So she's interested. This is in someone's garden. He's feeding about eight cats. I've done them all now. Patience is the big thing with trapping. So she can smell the food. I would have asked him not to feed them the night before or the morning she's going to be hungry so the food's drawing here in I put little bits in the lead up to the platform and at this point I'm going one more step one more step it's just just chewing all the little bits in the lead up I always say the sweetest sound is the sound of the trap going they're just so wary the feral cats so the trap's gone now and immediately I would go with the blanket to cover because it de-stresses them. They get very stressed when they're in there and they throw themselves around. They can hurt themselves. So I'll cover it a fleecy and the owner's in, in the kitchen. And that's it then, straight to the vet. What a wonderful kind lady, that's Sandy De Silva. Well done, one of the many volunteers who works with Rower, the Rural Animal Welfare Resource Group, which is based in uh, Bantry. Continue good luck to them. And if you can help them in any way, they're always looking for volunteers or funds. Please, please uh, do. Now, just quickly back to some of your comments coming in. Where, and you can still get your pet questions in for Jane, 0818103103. Bill in Clannacilty says, just a little bit of statistics for you. He's been crunching the numbers. He said, we average out 
about the trolley list. People waiting on trolleys to 500 patients waiting for beds a day. If you multiply that by a year, 365 days, and multiply that by five years, five years being the five years the government have been in office, it comes out at 936,000. Nearly one million people have been waiting for beds over the last five years. Now you add another 100,000 people going into that system. Where is the sense in that? Where will they all go? How can a government have a smile on their face knowing the facts of those on waiting lists, those waiting to get into a bed? Are the people who are contacting us waiting to get a hospital appointment? Nobody seems to be coming up with a plan. And Bill also thinks the worst thing that happened with the health system was getting rid of the regional health boards. Once that happened, local control went and now he thinks it's a great big mess the way the government now operate. Uh, Bill says we have a 27 county Ireland, not a 26 county. Dublin City itself seems to be a county all on its own. We cannot do anything in this country without first going through Dublin. 0818103103. Someone else says, Patricia, I think what needs to be highlighted is the lack of services in many parts of the country. And then if you get an influx of immigrants into that area, particularly in areas already poorly served, who is the government serving? The people of Ireland are the EU. Well, I do know that that's where the government are out saying that the 10 areas that have the most Ukrainian refugees and the most asylum seekers there to get extra services. How that will work out, I don't know. And then on the nuns, when we raised the issue of the nuns with that programme that was on this week, the last nuns in uh, Ireland, uh, Yvonne says, Hi Patricia, there were one or two good nuns in primary school in the early 80s in Mallow. As far as the others, I was slapped with the ruler, five hard slaps in the hand by by one nun and she said to me, if you cry, I will double it. Telling a 10-year-old not to cry while in pain, long story short, she did double it. There was another nun, another bully. I'm not, I know there's names on this text, but I'm not going to get into names for obvious reasons. Some of the nuns simply were just Horrible. Thank you for reading my text. That is from Yvonne. And then when somebody said it's great today to see children going into school and that they're happy and we've wonderful teachers, somebody wants to point out, Patricia, I assure you that our primary schools are not filled with kind, gentle teachers nowadays. There are still a few, what I can only describe as the old style teachers left. Unfortunately, it's almost impossible to get rid of them until they reach retirement. They no longer physically abuse, thank God, but they make up for it with the mental abuse of our children. We uh, are so grateful to have moved our child out of such a school where the principal, I can only describe the principal simply out of control, went to the Board of Management who told us there's little that the Board of Management can do. Sad really for the children still suffering in that school. We found our child a fantastic new school where the most important thing is to have a happy child, happy going into school and happy coming out of school. Goodness me. 0818103103. Lines are open. We are looking for your pet questions, please. And can I just give a big shout out? Louise was on to us to say, will you please give a big shout out and wish... uh, Everybody, good luck. A coach for college. I mentioned it on the community diary. They're doing the 10,000 laps. Uh, it's a fundraiser. It's going on all this week. It finishes up tomorrow, I'm, I'm sure. And it's a fundraiser for motor neuron disease. So best wishes to everybody at Coachford College. Uh, they'll be worn out with all the laps they're doing of the school pitch this week. 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Particularly 
looking for your pet questions, please, for Jane. Uh, get them into us. Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Jane Pickett of the Island Wood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group, uh, joining us this afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Jane. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you're very welcome. I just ran a piece, actually. We sent a reporter down to uh, Bantry to ROAR, the the Rural Animal Welfare uh, Resource Group, and they have been operating for a number of years the trap, neuter and return uh, scheme uh, for feral cats. And and they've been doing it really, really successfully. And it's led to somebody, including Teresa, said, really interested in that piece that you did. It's a pity that we don't have more uh, groups like that, particularly here in Mallow or the surrounding areas, uh, maybe then more stray cats would be uh, neutered. It, 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 they're charity groups, aren't they? They're usually just cat lovers that set up those trap, neuter and return schemes. Uh, usually, yes. Um, I know over the years, perhaps a bit more historically, there has been some kind of national schemes run by some of the larger charities. Um, but unfortunately, at the moment, I don't believe it. Certainly, at least in our local area, there's none active. Um, trap neuter release schemes are, are really great. Um, I think they, they take a lot of organising, they take a lot of manpower. Um, but really, it's, it's working and making great strides to reducing that, that feral cat population um, long term. We all know that, you know, a one feral cat can have a a, a, one feral unneutered cat can have a huge impact by producing a, a huge amount of babies who will then go on to promote, produce a huge amount of babies after them so the the population just really explodes if there's some unneutered cats out there so really trap neuter release schemes are essential to try They're and reduce that down it will be yeah. it will be great to see more of them. and sandy the volunteer was making the point that for people who you know start to feed a stray cat that comes to your door and a lot of people like to do that she said the best advice is get that cat neutered first and then you can, you know, you can still just feed it away and, and let it live uh, locally. Uh, but that's the best thing you can do because just feeding one cat, suddenly you could end up with a lot of cats very, very quickly. Absolutely, you can. And, and they'll, they'll come to wherever the, the food is the best. They really are, are quite good at finding a nice little place um, to, to get fed. But what I would say is that if you were going to, to follow that advice, just to make sure that that cat's not owned. Um, normally feral cats will be very flighty. Um, so that can be a, a good telltale. But even a cat in when they're outside their home environment can be quite flighty and some of them do kind of shop around the houses for snacks so it's really important before you'd embark upon anything like that to you know ask around locally make sure that that cat is not owned by somebody else may even be a case of checking for a chip checking for an ear tattoo checking for an ear tip um so you know perhaps work closely with a trap neuter release charity to get that done or perhaps your local vet can be a bit of a challenge not a lot of local vets will have um let's say the trap cages the trap neuter release program would have so sometimes catching little feral cats can be a bit of a challenge um, but it can be done but just make sure make sure that they're truly feral and not just a little bit of a, a flighty home home and well-loved pet Okay, alright um, straight into questions then um, Hi uh, Patricia I have a 13-month-old Cavishan beautiful dog neuters the only problem is if if I leave her off the lead at any time when we're out for a walk she runs away and won't come back any tips please would be much appreciated Okay, this is a really common problem and my heart goes out to you because one of my own dogs has really terrible recall, but they have a bit of an excuse. They're a sighthound and they traditionally don't have the best recall. Um, I would say it's definitely something that can be overcome, but it won't be a quick fix. This is really going to be a project for you and your little dog to sort out because good recall is really essential if you do want to let your pet off the lead for their safety, but also for the safety of the other humans and pets around them. Um, So 
lots of ways you can do this. I would say safety first. The best thing you can do initially if you want to give them a bit of freedom, but not totally let them off the lead, is get a long line. So these are big, long dog leads that you can kind of roll up essentially and keep a bit in your hand, but gives them a lot more freedom to go and run and roam. Now, there's a wee bit of a difference between a long line, which is kind of just a like a big, long dog lead and a flexi lead. I probably wouldn't recommend a flexi lead. They're the ones that almost kind of curl back on themselves like a washing line and they can extend and retract back. They're fine in certain circumstances. But if you have a flighty dog that's going about their business and exploring an area, they can be a little bit dangerous if they were to recoil quickly. So I'd normally in that circumstance recommend just a big, long lead. Um, You can get them sometimes for vets, pet shops online. They are definitely out there. That means that you have some time to play with. Your dog's getting a bit of freedom, um, but you can make sure that they're attached to you and can come back. And that really helps with the initial training. What you need to try and do is pick a command, which will mean that your dog comes back to you. So that might be their name or it might be another phrase. Whatever you pick, stick to it. Always say it in the same tone of voice. Okay, so I think sometimes when they're not answering commands, we have we have a tendency to get higher and higher pitched in our voice as our frustration grows. But that doesn't help our pet out because they don't know what the word means. They they know the tone and the intonation of the voice. So say it really calmly and keep it consistent. So if if your if your um if your command is come back, just keep saying come back. Um and have a really high value treat. So you don't want to be bringing any old treats um, on a walk when you know your pet has lots of fun distractions and lots of things they'd probably prefer to be doing rather than stuck to your side. You want to bring the absolute tastiest thing they can imagine, but still safe for their tummy. I would say a real winner in our household is little bits of ham or little bits of chicken breast. Um, they go down really well. And in most cases, for most pets, unless they have a dietary intolerance, are, are quite well tolerated. Um, so bring something super tasty on your walks when you're trying to train your pet to come back. So maybe give them a little bit of lead, let them have a sniff around, and then give them their command, whatever that is, whether it's come back, um, and try and get them to come, maybe gently encourage them with a little gentle, gentle tug on the long line so they kind of pay attention, no dragging or anything like that, just a gentle encouragement and offer the treat out. Dogs have a great sense of smell so they'll probably be able to smell it from a mm. distance away and once they come back give them all of the praise in the world they are the best boy or girl you have ever seen and give them lots of fuss and then let them off and do a little bit more and just repeat that cycle over and over again but the important thing is having a really high value treat something they really 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 love to associate with that command to get them to come back reliably it'll take a while it won't be a one week fix it might be a few months fix but you will get there. Yeah and it's a young dog at, at 13 months now it seems to be behaviour issues this morning because uh, hi Patricia and Jane our two year old cockapoo hates being crated up uh, while I give a run to the shop for example. She is safe and can't get into any mi- mischief but she simply hates being locked up. Only the other day I popped out just to bring in the bins and I left her free in the kitchen peeped in the window only to see her walking along my kitchen worktop it's like she can read my mind the minute she senses I want to lock her up, she'll go in under a coffee table, she'll go in under a bed and no way can I get her out without stressing her and stressing myself. It's becoming annoying. After all, who is the boss here? I'm at my wit's end. Now, I only crate her up once a week for maybe about an hour. Yes, hands up, she is spoilt because she's rarely without a family member at home with her. When we're at home with her, she's the sweetest dog ever. However, once I need to crate her, it's a different personality altogether thanking you and if you can get a dog used to a crate it's fantastic isn't it 
Mm, it really is. It's a very helpful thing. My goodness, I can hear the frustration coming through. It's, it's you know, it's a real challenge, particularly when you have an, a little sweet angel of a dog until you try and get them to do something they don't want to do. And then, then things very much change. A few quick pointers, I'd say, is if you want to get your dog used to being in the crate, you need to do more than one hour a week. You need to have it regular short periods, probably a short period once or twice a day. A really handy way of doing that is feeding time. Um, so my own dogs at home, everyone's different and everyone's situation is different. But my own dogs at home get crated for their food. So they will like clockwork. I'll come in for work at six o'clock, start putting on the kettle to make some food and they'll they'll pop themselves inside in their own crates ready and waiting for their food. So they're, you know, they're creatures of habit. And if we can really exploit that habituation that dogs really crave, then life might be a lot easier. So I think make the crate really comfy. You don't want it to be somewhere they, where they're sent when they're, you know, being being disciplined or being annoying or you know anything like that it needs to be somewhere where they voluntarily want to go so make it super cozy it's like their little den make it their cozy space and potentially make sure it's big enough I think a big mistake I see a lot of the time is tiny crate for uh, a small dog and they don't really have enough space to move around so make sure where you're trying to lock your pet is appropriate for their size um, so they can get up, wiggle her and turn around and have a have a little poddle about. Um, and I think maybe try and train them very much like we were talking about with the last dog, getting them to recall when they're out and about. High value treats when you're putting your dog into the crate are really helpful. And initially you might have to be doing that twice a day, but maybe think about maybe potentially feeding them in their crate twice a day so that they know that that happens and they know it's a safe space but don't leave your pet in there for very long either so I think maybe start small start with five ten minutes and then let them out and work up to your hour that you're probably going to need for shopping but regularity is really really important here and I think another last tip I'd say is when you're leaving your pet in the crate a helpful way of giving them a high value treat but keeping them busy for a wee while so they don't scoff it is one of those little fillable toys there's lots of ones on the market there's Kong there's there's Westpaw, um, plenty of them on the market, but find a, a tough, durable one that can be stuffed with lots of food, whether that be your pet's own kibble, a little bit of their wet food, a small bit of cream cheese, unless they have an intolerance to that. And if you really want to give them a big challenge, if they munch through that way too quickly, you can actually always put it in the freezer and it makes it a little bit harder. And that will keep their brain engaged, a little bit distracted. That's an exciting thing they only get when they go into the crate. You might find that they eventually start lining up for it. So it is a challenge, but very Stick much with like it. our last caller, you'll get there. Stick with it. Okay, listen, as always, a pleasure. Have a good week, Jane, and we'll talk to you next Thursday. Thanks for joining us. You too. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary uh, Group. Someone says, hi, Patricia. Well done for giving airtime to the wonderful people of Rower in West uh, Cork. And the, the lady you were talking to, Sandy, paid reference to community cats who do similar work in another part of uh, Cork. They also do amazing work. So you might give a shout out and say hello to Maggie and Jim Dwyer <coughs> because they run uh, Community uh, Cats. OK, glad uh, to give them a mention. OK, that's where I leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and we will be back with you tomorrow morning for the final one of the week, uh, Friday morning at 10. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 